Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The New Testament lesson for today is from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Peter and John experienced their first persecution, having been arrested and released for preaching the gospel. When they returned to the disciples, they all prayed together for boldness to continue their ministry of preaching, healing, and serving despite the threats and opposition. I'm reading from Acts chapter 4, beginning with the 23rd verse. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak with words that are all with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and the signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May God had his blessing to the reading of his holy word. How should Christians respond to a hostile culture? When the trends of culture move away from and even begin operating against the way of Christ, how are we to respond? You know, when I was a kid, I I didn't really ever have to think about that question because, frankly, the culture around me where I was growing growing up was pretty much in line with the ways that I was learning in my Christian household and in my Christian school. But in the 40 years since I was a kid, the culture around us has changed quite a bit. And now this question, how are we to respond to a hostile culture? Well, it's, it's the question. I see so many of us wrestling with it. It's in so many of our conversations throughout the week. How are we Christians supposed to respond to a hostile culture. Well, in today's scripture, we see the biblical way. We see the Holy Spirit way. And we're going to get to that. Is anybody curious just to learn more from the Holy Spirit? How are we supposed to respond to a hostile culture? We're going to get into it in the word. But before we do, I just want to briefly outline some of the ways that Christians across the centuries have answered this question. Some of the ways that Christians have responded to a hostile culture. I want to give you these three categories. They're outlined in a book called Christ and Culture, written by a theologian named Richard Niebuhr in 1951. And he does a great job kind of distilling the the instinctual ways 
that Christians across the centuries have responded to a hostile culture. I'm just going to briefly outline these and describe them. The first one is confrontation. Confrontation, or what Niebuhr calls Christ against culture. You've heard the phrase, haven't you? Culture wars. I know you hear this phrase all the time. The confrontation model of answering that question, how to respond to a hostile culture, basically believes that, that there's, like, there's two teams. There's secularism and there's Christianism. And only one of the two teams can win. It's a zero-sum game. Either the Chiefs or the 49ers <laughs> will go home with a Lombardi trophy. But not both. One team has to be destroyed and the other team victorious. Confrontation. Christianism against secularism. And I know some of you, some of you are wondering, wait, there is another way? Yes, there's more. There's other ways that Christians across the centuries have answered this question. How do we respond to a hostile culture? There's confrontation, but there's also withdrawal. Withdrawal, or what Niebuhr would call Christ above culture. We realize that the culture around us has become hostile to Christianity, so we say, i got to move out of here. I'm just going to go move next to people who are like me. i got to be around Christians. Maybe you think of like a monk moving to a monastery, total withdrawal from culture. But often the withdrawal model is much more subtle than moving into a monastery. I hear this, this is actually kind of how I resonate, the withdrawal model. During the pandemic especially, I lost count of how many families came to me saying, you know, Pastor Nathan, we love Sandwich Church, but we got to move out of the Northeast. It's too hard to raise our kids in the secular environment. We're moving to Nashville. We're moving to Dallas. We're moving to Florida. It's a withdrawal. And I'm tempted to do this myself. I had a sabbatical, and I could have gone anywhere in the world, but I withdrew to my hometown, Holland, Michigan, where I was around my Christian family and my Christian friends. This is, I'm not really the confrontation kind of person. I don't bring the fight you know, to culture. I withdraw. So there's confrontation, Christ against culture. There's withdrawal, Christ above culture. And then there's assimilation, assimilation, Christ of culture. The assimilation model basically says, look, if you can't beat them, join them. We Christians can be just like everyone else in our culture. And you know these types of Christians, you know this type of church, it's an assimilation kind of church when, when basically the, the message coming from the pulpit is just a parrot or a mirror of the messages coming from culture. Often it takes on the form of the political talking points. One of the two main parties have their own agendas and talking points, and sometimes pulpits are just parroting the same messaging coming from, the, from politics. Or anything else, any trend or whim of culture. The flags being waved in culture. If you see those same flags being waved at that church, that's an assimilation type of approach. Christ of culture. Now, does anybody want to know a better way. See, these three ways that Christians have tended to respond to a hostile culture over the centuries, I look at these and I think, in many ways, these are reactionary. These are fear-based. In our fear, we want to either beat the competition or we want to withdraw from it or we just want to get along with it. These are really fear-based. But the Bible tells us today, the Scripture shows us today, not a fear-based response to the hostile culture, but a Holy Spirit-infused and empowered way. The way of Christ. So do you want to know what it is? Let's get into it. I know. I know you do. I do too. 
chapter 4, verse 23. Let's find out what's going on in this story. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Let's find out this better way, this Holy Spirit way to respond. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Where are we in the story? We're going through the whole book of Acts in this sermon series, but if you were here last week, you know what happened. Peter and John, they encountered a man lame from birth, sitting at the the beautiful gate of the temple. And they healed the man. And for the first time in his life, he was able to enter into the temple and experience connection with God and with fellow man. But they didn't just heal a man. They healed a man in the name of, in the authority of Jesus. And this got them into a lot of trouble with the powers that be in Jerusalem at the time. They got hauled before the panel. They got hauled before the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the elders, and they got grilled. They said, in whose name? Remember last week we we saw that the name, they said the name of Jesus is the authority of Jesus, the authority of God. And the Sanhedrin hauls them out, Peter and John in front of them, and they say, in whose name did you do this? And they said, Jesus And you see, the Sanhedrin realized that this authority, this name was disruptive to their own power structures. And so they assemble together. In verse 17 of this verse, they say to Peter and John, they say, all right, here's the deal. You can no longer speak. You can no longer operate in the name of Jesus. That's a hostile culture, right? The authority structures, the powers that be in Jerusalem, the culture Basically said this way of Christ, this name of Christ, this authority of Christ that you're operating in, it's not allowed anymore. So how do they respond? What do they do? Verse 23, I'll read it again. When they were released from the Sanhedrin, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. How do they respond? Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is an important thing to stop on for a moment. When they realized that the way of Christ, the name of Christ, the authority of Christ was running up against the trends and the authorities and the power structures of culture. They realized they're in a hostile culture. The first thing they did was pray. They said, we got to pray. We need to appeal to sovereign God, the authority above all authorities, the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. We got to stop and we got to pray. Notice with me that when they realized that the way of Christ was bumping up against culture, they were in a hostile culture, the first thing they did was pray. The first thing they did was not say, we got to protest. We need to march in the streets. Boo, Herod. Boo, Pilate. They don't do that. They pray. They didn't say, we got to form a super PAC. They didn't say, we need to hire some lobbyists. We at least got to form a Facebook group so that we can tell each other how we agree with each other. Congratulate ourselves. No. They prayed. They prayed. They appealed to the authority above all authorities. And they didn't just pray. They prayed the scriptures. Let's continue in verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
They're simply quoting Psalm 2. They're praying the Psalms, you see. They started praying and they prayed in the language of David who prophetically wrote down Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see that capital A, anointed. This is a prophetic vision of Christ. David somehow saw prophetically through his prayer that one day the Messiah would come, Jesus would come, and the rulers and the kings and the authorities, the culture would come against him. And they say, why, Lord? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They're simply praying Psalm 2. This is a really good instruction for us. If you've ever been to a a Stanwich Church prayer gathering, you know this is what we do. We open up a psalm and we pray through it. You've been, many of you have been to these prayer gatherings. We're just doing what the early Christians did. It's great because it situates us in context, in historical context. It situates us in the story of God. David saw this coming prophetically. Why, Lord, do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. Why are people, why, are, why is culture coming against your anointed one? Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now, there's an interesting change here that takes place. Let's just look real quickly at Psalm 2, the, the psalm that they're praying. Let's look at the actual psalm. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bible open, you can flip to it. Otherwise, it'll be on the wall. This is what David wrote. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, it talks about the kings of the earth, the nations, the peoples, or as they translated it in Acts, the Gentiles. But look what, as they're praying through Psalm 2, look what happens in verse 27. Yes, the, the nations and the, and the kings are set against your anointed one. But then it says, both Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They're a little bit confused because they saw that David prophesied that the Gentile nations would come against God's Messiah. But now they're in Jerusalem, in this city, they say. And even Herod, even, even the, the, the peoples of Israel, the people who should know better, the religious leaders are even coming against your anointed. And so this Psalm 2 prayer leads them into a deeper wrestling with God. God, we knew, we anticipated that the secularists would come against Christ. But even some of the most religious people are as well. People who should know better. What's going on here? And we can pray this to God. We can say, God, why are you allowing so... It seems like everywhere we look, people are coming against the way of Christ. People are coming against the movement of the gospel. Yes, the people we'd expect it to come from, but also those who should know better. How do we respond to that? How do we respond? And in the scripture, it shows us some very clear action steps in how to respond when the culture around us is hostile against the ways of Christ. Do you want to know what those action steps are? Pastor Heather does. <laughs> so do I. But, but, before we get to the action steps, there's a very 
important first step. We've prayed, and in prayer, we're reminded of something. We're reminded of something to believe. Before we get to the action steps, I know some of you are ready for the action steps, but we have to believe something very important before we act. And that's what the early Christians did. Verse 28, they're still praying to God. All these people are coming against the way of Christ. Why? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What do we need to remember? What do we need to believe? Before we act, before we respond to a hostile culture, we need to remember, we need to believe that God is sovereign. That whatever happens in the unfolding story of history happens under the sovereign hand of God. It says even here, all those bad things, all those things coming against Christianity were predestined to take place as part of God's plan. Yes, our world has changed since I was a kid. But this is not a surprise to God. This is not a surprise to God. It's a surprise to me. Probably to you too. But it's not a surprise to God. Peter, the one in the story, he would later go on to write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love the way he phrases that. I look around at our culture today and I'm like, this is so strange. This is so weird. Everyone's lost their minds. What's going on here? And Peter says, don't be surprised. God's not surprised. And I wonder if they're led to this part in the prayer because they began praying with Psalm 2 and they knew They had their Bibles probably memorized. They knew what the rest of Psalm 2 says. And the rest of Psalm 2, it gives, yes, it talks about the nations and the leaders and the kings coming against the anointed one. But then in the second half of Psalm 2, it gives us a God's eye view of the same scene, a heaven's eye perspective of the same scene. I love this. Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, these strong, mighty ones coming against Christ. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. We're surprised, we're shaking in our boots, but God looks out into the whole thing. He's laughing about it. It's like God looks down from his mighty, unshakable, unmovable throne his throne room of the universe, he looks down at all these strong forces coming against Christianity and he's like, oh, that's adorable. (laughs) He's not threatened. God is not threatened. He laughs and he says, I've set my king on my holy hill. I have established Jesus Christ, my one and only son, as the king of kings. Nothing coming against him is a threat to him. It's all part of my predestined plan, it says here. So we are wise, dear brothers and sisters, dear Christians, living in a hostile culture, to remember this, to believe this. That God is sovereign. That word sovereign just basically means he's in control. God's in control. That hasn't changed. All right, so now what are the action steps? Now that we believe that, we're reminded of that. 
Well, if I could be so bold and to add a fourth category onto what Niebuhr proposed, we, we, we heard him talking about the, the confrontation, the withdrawal, or the assimilation. I, I estimated that these are really kind of fear-based responses to a hostile culture. But what would be a Holy Spirit-infused response? The way of the Bible. The fourth category, I would describe it as gospel engagement. Christ-transforming culture. And I so love being a part of this church, Stanwich Church, because I think this is what we do. This is what we do. We engage the culture with the gospel. And there are three action steps that are really only possible if the Holy Spirit is upon us. Not if we're acting in our flesh or acting in our fear, confronting, withdrawing, or assimilating, but if we're acting, if we're operating in that better power that Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, we will do these three action steps as we engage the culture with the gospel. Our first action step is to speak boldly. To speak boldly. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon that hostile culture and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Notice they realize the culture. They've just been told by the Sanhedrin, you can no longer speak the name of Jesus. And they're saying, Lord, we're going to need your Holy Spirit power because we're going to go on speaking the name of Jesus. And it's going to get us into some trouble. In fact, we might even die like you did. So give us boldness, will you? And this is what we continue to do here at this church. We're not watering down the gospel. We're not filtering the gospel. We go literally out onto the street corner in Stanford and we play Christian songs. And we get a microphone and somebody proclaims the unfiltered, bold truth of the gospel. Yes, truth, capital T, truth. In a whole world that says, oh no, you can't claim to have the truth. There's your truth, and there's my truth. We as a church are saying, no, we we have this audacious idea that we believe we know the truth. What is the truth? That we are sinners, and we need a Savior. We are sinners. You're not supposed to say that in our culture these days. That's the truth. And we need a Savior. There is one singular Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, continue to make us bold, even if it gets us in trouble. So speak boldly. We don't need to, we don't need to assimilate. We can still speak boldly because that's what the early Christians did, infused and empowered with the Holy Spirit. Some of you are really excited about step number one. Those, those of you who are like the confrontation type people, you're like, yeah, speak boldly. Finally, Nathan's saying it. (laughs) You get the emails too, you know. Well, just wait for the second action step, okay? Speak boldly, yes, but also serve humbly. This is our call. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand, Lord, to heal Remember, they're, they're in trouble 
for blessing, for healing a lame beggar, someone literally in the margin, somebody who's been excluded from the temple, who's been excluded from the family of God. Peter and John have stretched out their hand, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, to heal. They could have prayed anything right here. They could have said, Lord, while you stretch out your hand to smite, to destroy, to beat the chiefs. No. While you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If we're following Christ and we meet confrontation, we meet a hostile culture, we're supposed to do what he did, which is to serve, which is to heal. The Bible is particularly concerned from the earliest pages to the last with four groups of people in the world. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. And God says, go and find them wherever they are in the margins of your world and serve them, lift them up. So we serve. We speak boldly. We don't filter. We don't water down the truth of the gospel. And we serve humbly because that's what Jesus did. Action step number three, pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. Speak boldly. Serve humbly. Pray expectantly as we interact with a hostile culture. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Picture it. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love this. They're praying and they're seeking the Lord. They're appealing to the authority above all authorities. They're remembering that he's sovereign, that he's not surprised by any of this. They're saying, Lord, continue to allow us to speak boldly while we serve humbly. And as they pray, they get access to, they begin experiencing earth-shaking power. And we can pray to that same Holy Spirit asking to shake our world up too. We don't need to mess around with the powers of this world. We have access to a better power. And when we pray, we can pray expectantly that God is still on his throne and God is still on the move. And he calls us to engage culture with the gospel, to transform it in the way that he did. Now, it's interesting, after the 9 a.m., I talked with a lot of people, and there's various people who felt rather challenged uh, by my categories, by Niebuhr's categories, you know, personally. I mentioned to you that I, I tend to think of myself as the withdrawer. Other people are more confrontational, or, or the assimilators would wish I, I would stop talking about the capital T truth so much, you know, just like, assimilate, play it cool, man. Like my kids, play it cool. <laughs> assimilate. Try to act cool. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if you sense any one of these three categories. Um, I hope that you feel invited into this gospel engagement category. But if that is you, if any of these first three categories are you, I want to just illustrate this one one more way. Let's look at this one more way. Peter himself. This is Peter operating in this whole story. Peter, you know, before he was infused with the Holy Spirit. He did all three of the, of the categories, the fear-based categories. 
Think about it. It was Peter. Remember when the, the soldiers come up to arrest Jesus and one of the disciples chops off the ear of one of the soldiers? That was Peter. Confrontation. We got to beat these guys, right? Well, then Peter, again, speaking of the, uh, the assimilation one, remember he's around the fire warming himself and someone comes up to him and they say, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, I'm cool. I'm good. I don't know Jesus. He tried to assimilate. That's Peter. And then the withdrawal piece, once Jesus started getting into a lot of trouble, he's heading towards the cross. Where did Peter go? Back to his hometown. He went straight to Galilee and started fishing again. Withdrawal. Now let's ask, did any of those three approaches that Peter tried, did any of them help? <laughs> Chopping off the guy's ear, pretending he didn't know Jesus around the campfire or disappearing when trouble came, did any of those actually help the cause of Christ? No. So why do we think any of those would help? Those of us who are tempted to confront, withdraw, or assimilate. But now look at Peter. Healing a blind or a lame beggar in the name of Jesus, getting hauled out before the authorities, huddling for prayer, appealing to the one still seated upon the throne of the universe, saying, Lord, I believe you're sovereign. Now lead me to action. Lead me to continue speaking boldly, serving humbly, and praying expectantly. That approach, the gospel engagement approach, did it help? Here we are. Look at the effect. Look at the fruit of Peter's approach to the hostile culture and the early Christians as well. So this is our invitation. The only thing that changed in Peter's life was that the Holy Spirit came upon him. So, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Like you did for Peter. Do for us, do for this church. We want to transform this culture around us. We can't do it on our own. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church, and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.